Well, good morning. We're going to be mainly in Matthew chapter 4 uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at the temptations of Jesus in that chapter and try to make some application uh, with that uh, passage. And so James chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, probably most of you know this passage. It says, Let no one say when, I, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so James gives this process uh, that it all starts uh, when one is, of course, when he's tempted, but when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And so if I see something, if I hear something, that it may spark that desire within me, and then it can grow. He says, when, and he puts it as when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, I can desire those things, but it may not necessarily lead to sin. But it also, in many cases, it does. And, of course, when I commit sin, what does that bring forth? It brings forth death. Interesting enough, of course, again, we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus, and we're going to be looking at Satan tempting Jesus. And what's here is what James writes, this is all about me. But we read passages and we see where Satan, uh, of course, tempts Jesus. We see uh, Satan being called deceiver, a liar. We see here in Genesis chapter 3, here uh, with Eve, uh, that, of course, here we have the serpent uh, tempting Eve, that Satan doesn't force anyone to sin. He doesn't come up and just kind of drag somebody away, kicking, screaming, and forcing them to commit a sin. But what we do see here is that Satan can tempt somebody. That we see here that, of course, if you read the entirety of the story, uh, the serpent comes to, to Eve and says, you know, you know, you're going to become like God if you eat this fruit. And you can imagine, I would imagine that Adam and Eve probably went by this tree or seen this tree plenty of times and didn't ever think twice about eating it because God told them not to. But after the serpent spoke to Eve, what happens? The woman saw that the tree was good for, for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And so all of a sudden, because somebody said something about it, well, you know, that makes a whole lot of sense. And this is looking pretty good. You know, I think about if, you know, I can be perfectly fine, but if somebody tells me there's chocolate cake in the refrigerator, all of a sudden... That's all I can think about. And all of a sudden, I'm hungry for the rest of the day. And it's because that chocolate cake is sitting in the refrigerator or steak or whatever it may be. It's just something, just knowing that, it sparks that desire. And so, again, we're going to look at uh, Satan tempting Jesus. And we're going to look at how Satan kind of acts in that manner. He's not forcing Jesus to, to, to do anything, but he's trying to tempt him. And he's, he, and he's speaking things that are in many ways true, but he may be taking them out of context or he just may be not you know, speaking that in the, in the right way. And he's trying to get Jesus to commit a sin. So Matthew chapter 
4 and verse 2, and also we don't read, I didn't have verse 1 here, but it says that he was drawn by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That's, I don't know why, but that's just for whatever reason, uh, he was going to, he was being, he's being led by the Spirit to, uh, to be tempted for that specific reason. And in verse 2, it says, When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he fasts 40 days and 40 nights, and he's hungry, as he should be. should be very hungry. And he says, The tempter came to him. And he says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Notice that phrase. It says, if you are the Son of God, and, and in the second temptation, he uses that same phrase again. He says, if you are the Son of God. And you kind of think about that's kind of a challenge. You know, if, you're, if you are who you say you are, why don't you do this? And it's kind of like somebody telling me that, you know, if you're man enough, you ought to be doing this. And uh, it's, it's meant to be provocative, to try to provoke some response and say, oh, well, let me show you something. And, but... And it's also, it's provocative, but also it can lead to some type of doubt. That it's like, well, you know, maybe I can't do this. Maybe this is not exactly who I am. Because what, what the tempter is saying is something that's, that's for me, I can't, I can't do that. And so, of course, if he is the Son of God, he could do these. And so it's provocative, but also can lead to some type of doubt of the power and authority that Christ has. And he also, he uses Jesus' condition to tempt him, that he's hungry. And he says, you know, you're hungry, why don't you just do this? You know, why should the Son of God be hungry? In Psalms 15, verse 10, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. If he was hungry, he could have just, he could have made these stones bread. He could have created a cow or whatever it may be to, to eat. But notice how Christ responds. He says, He has written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so this is how he responds. And I just want to take a minute to look at that Satan is trying to use his needs, his hunger against him. And our needs can also draw us away from God. A lot of times we think about this verse, and sometimes this can be used as an excuse. You're like, "Oh, well, I got to work, so I can't, I can't do this or that, or I can't, I can't come to services or whatever it may be." You know, Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse ten says, "For even when we were with you, we commanded you this: If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat." And we all understand that we all ought to be uh, working. That's something that's getting become increasingly lost in our culture today. That this is what we ought to be doing. But we also see in, in, in Matthew, of course, Matthew 4, we see a response. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus says, For I come down, from, come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the reason why he came, to do the will of him who sent me, to do God's will. And also Matthew chapter 6 and verses 33 in 34, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we ought to work, and we ought to work to supply our own needs. But also, just as Jesus said, 
you know, he says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I can't live with just by bread. I have to have God, and I have to have his word. And we see Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God. He, said, he doesn't say seek first your job or your family or anything else. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's, so Jesus is saying, this is number one. This is my own priority. Yes, I'm hungry, but this is what I'm about. I'm about, I'm about his word and doing the will of God, the one that who sent me. Also in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, he says, Then the devil took him up in, in the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I was doing some reading about this. The pinnacle sounds like the top. Some speculate this might have been Solomon's porch. I don't know. He's, He's up in a high place on the temple. And, you know, you think about what's going on at the temple. There's people always there. There would have been a lot of people in Jerusalem. And notice what he says. That if you throw yourself down, and again, notice what he says. He says, if you are the Son of God, so that same phrase and kind of that question, throw yourself down. And he's saying basically that if you throw yourself down, he ain't going to be killed. The angels have charge over him. Their hands shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And so he could have done this. And you think about the people that were around there. This would have been a this would have been a great place to prove his power. Just imagine all them people seeing that, seeing angels coming down and bearing him up after he fell off that temple. And of course, we see all these miracles, and people still don't believe. So there's going to be a lot of people that if they did witness this, they would not. They still not would believe. But nonetheless. Uh, this would have been a great place to prove his power. This has been an ideal location for him. But notice what Jesus says. He says, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So again, he says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. It says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. And so, does this mean that God's promise is, is not true or that he's not willing to keep his promises? He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you all this, but don't you, don't you tempt me. You know, does that mean that what was previously written about Jesus and the angels bearing him up, is that not, is that not true? Well, no. What it just means is that he cannot wantonly put himself in danger to test God. We can't just do things for the sheer purpose of trying to get a reaction out of God. That's what's being said here. And that's how Jesus responds. And what we see here with, with uh, Satan, that he, try, he keeps trying to misuse the Scripture or brings up something that's true, but, doesn't, but he leaves out the whole picture. And he, and he misuses Scriptures. Some, well, one person in here probably already know what I'm fixing to talk about here with that picture. Me and Ruth are watching, if you all know, uh, a TV show called In the Heat of the Night. 
some of y'all probably home during the summer, y'all probably seen this. Some of you younger people probably seen this show. And so I think the season starts in 1989. And about, I think it was in 1990, Chief Bill Gillespie starts driving a truck that's very similar to that. That's a, that's a, in case y'all know, that's about an 87 to a 91 model F-250 four-wheel drive. And every time, of course, now in the later season, he's done changed it off to a Ford Explorer now that he's driving around. But every time I see that, I'm just like, man, I like that truck. I want that truck. I tell Ruth, go buy me that truck. Go find me a truck like that. It's just like it. And, uh, uh, and anyways, you look at Matthew chapter 7, and, and these scriptures are misused, and there are some others that are similar to this that says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And people say, hey, you know, just ask him. He's going to give it to you. A lot of people that talk about the prosperity gospel that basically say, hey, you know, if you believe God, he's going to make everything right for you. He's going to clear out the way. He's going to, he's going to mysteriously make money come into your bank account. And, I, you know, you actually watch TV and you actually hear stories of that. It's saying claiming God's put money in people's bank account that if whatever you need, doesn't matter what it is, God's going to give it to you. And, of course... We understand, and if you read to get the full story, if we ask anything according to his will, he's going to give it to us. So not just anything. He's not just going to give me a pile of money. He's not going to give me a new truck. He's not going to give me a, a big old house. And uh, we understand that this. we have to understand the proper context of what's being said here. We ask it according to his will, he's going to give it to us. If we want to know more about him, we want to know more about his word, we're going to be able to do that. Seek and you will find. It's all interesting. He says ask, but a lot of people don't like the seeking and the knocking part because that requires a little activity on our part as well. We ask, but we also need to seek those things. We need to seek uh, his will. And, of course, if everyone asks who receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. All right? Another passage that's often misused Everybody, y'all probably all have seen this scripture being misused. This is in the context of of the the, the of Judea of, of Judea uh, being taken captive by the by the Babylonians, and this is what's being spoken about here. And God tells them, He says, "For I know the plans." He basically tells them, "Y'all just kind of live." In, in Babylon for a little while. And then, he, and then he says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. I will say that this generally applies, you know, this same idea is spoken of in the New Testament that God wants the best for us. He, he's going to give us a hope in the future, but oftentimes that's misused to say, well, you know, what I think is best is if, is if I go to college and get a good, fancy, paying job and, and, and live my dreams. And because that's what I want, well, you know, God wants me to prosper, and so that's what I'm going to do. And so this is not what he's saying. And he says, you know, you're going to be set free. You're going to be able to, you're going to, be able to go back. You're going to have this hope in the future. But this is not the end of y'all. 
And so we have to recognize and be careful when we look at these scriptures to understand the proper context. He's not just saying he did, that he's just, I kind of think about his, of him just being kind of like a bank account and I can just withdraw and get anything I want from it. And he's going to, he's going to cash that check or whatever, anything that I want, he's going to give it to me. And this is simply not what's being said here. And so recognize that Satan is tempting Jesus and he's using these scriptures. But we have to recognize and understand the full picture and know the entirety of the scriptures to understand that when we, even if we're in a situation where somebody is using scriptures out of context, we ought to know and say, wait a minute, this is not true. And just like we see in Jeremiah 20 and in Matthew chapter 7 as well. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. He says, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And so here we have Satan takes him up. Now he's called the devil. Notice he's called the tempter. Now he's called the devil on an exceedingly high mountain, and he showed him all of these, this, this world. And it seems like, just seems in my mind, that it seems like Satan's kind of getting kind of desperate now. He's like, look, if you just, I'll, I'm going to give you all this if you fall, just fall down and worship me. It's interesting because you start thinking, well, does Satan even have this power to do that? I don't believe he, he even had the power to do these things. God, you know, God's the ruler of these things. He's described as kind of the ruler of the world. Satan is described as the ruler of the world, so to speak, but that's those that are sinners. And so Satan is trying to tell Jesus that, look, I'm going to give you all this stuff. You're going to be able to, to rule all of these area, all of this area if you'll just fall down and worship me. Which I just think is fascinating because he's already, <laughs> he's already, he's already in, in in charge of all this. So I, it's it's interesting nonetheless. But it seems as though he's trying to tempt through those earthly passions, those earthly lusts of just saying, "Hey, I'm gonna give you all this. You're sitting, high, you're seeing all this on earth. I'm gonna give it all to you if you just worship me." In verse 10, he says, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only uh, you shall serve. And so again, he's t- trying to tempt him through the lust of the flesh. We seem trying to, and we could probably say the same thing about all, all of these, that you know, he's trying to make him uh, eat this, uh, turn stones into bread. Why? Because he's hungry. He's trying to get him to uh, you know, basically test God. And also, you know, he could he could be it could be shown everybody around that area would see him. But now he's again saying, "I'm gonna give you some power. I'm gonna give you some authority if you just do this." And uh, of course, we see Jesus' response again. He quotes scripture: "You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only or you shall serve." In First John chapter two and verse sixteen, it says, "For all that is in the world." The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So all these, all these things that can allure us through the flesh. Looked at First Corinthians today. All the things there in that city that could draw people away. Notice what John had to say about. It. He says it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. 
and we can't have any part with any type of friendship with the world is enmity against God. So I have to put those things away. I cannot be drawn away and, uh, and tempted and let those desires uh, take me uh, into sin. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 18 is talking about false teachers. But he says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh to lewdness the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So, I can't remember. I'm, start, I, I'm trying to remember that uh, I think it was Paul talking about he, that Satan would disguise himself as an angel of light or something along that line. That, uh, you know, they're going to, the, these people that are in line with Satan, uh, that they're going to act in the same manner that he is. Just as Satan tries to allure through the lust of the flesh, these false teachers are going to do the same thing. They're going to speak great swelling words of emptiness. It's going to sound good. You think about all these people. I think about people in positions of power and that they can talk about, they can say all these things and then at the end of the day, you're just like, what did you just say? That this is great swelling words. They sound nice, but it's emptiness. It doesn't really mean a whole lot. And this is who they are. Again, they lure through the lust of the flesh to lewdness. And they're alluring those that have escaped from those, uh, from those who live in error, so they're trying. They can draw people back into that sin that wants escape from that error. So the power that they can, you know, that they can have over those people, and it's just again, it's just sparking that desire, and it ends up to where they actually go back into that error, and, and they go back into that sin, as we see in James chapter, uh, James chapter one, Second Peter chapter one verse four says, "By which." by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So this is us. We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. Notice what he says. He says, through these you may be partakers of the, of the divine nature. That's, I don't, know, I don't know if I could say I know at all what's going on there, but that's, that's fascinating to me. That you can be partakers of the divine nature. And you, again, we read these passages talking about you're being you know, part of this inheritance. Uh, you're being called brethren uh, by Christ. You're, I mean, I don't, we just can't, I don't think we just realize really what's going on in this scheme of salvation here, what's, uh, what's going on here, and the greatness of what's, what's happening here. But we can be partakers of the divine nature. Notice what it says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we have escaped that. We're not a part of that. And so we see the contrast. This uh, pride of life, these great swelling words of emptiness, and that sounds all good, but notice what we got. Exceedingly great and precious promises. And so we can escape those things. We can escape that corruption that is in the world. Well, that's the end of that. That was kind of short, but I I wanted to take a few minutes to look at that and, and... you know, we think about how Jesus uh, is tempted and how he responded to those. What, how did he respond? He focused on the word and what it says. And he truly believed that, even if it meant that he had to continue to endure hardship, at least for a little while longer. And so that ought to be, we ought to have, that ought to be a great lesson for us, that we can uh, endure those things. And, you know, if he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was, in, was willing to endure 
a temptation of making bread, of satisfying that need. I don't think there's just about, there's not anything that we can endure. And so we ought to be able to take great hope in that. We can endure any type of temptation. We can endure any type of sin. That's what the word, world, the word tell, tells us. And so uh, we enter into this time of invitation now. If anyone is, here is not a Christian, and they want to be a part of that, those, uh, and to partake in those great and precious promises, we'd certainly like to discuss those things with you. Uh, if you need uh, uh, to be baptized or for whatever reason we wish that you would come, and also if you are a Christian and uh, you, are, um, you need to confess anything, you have sin that needs to be dealt with, uh, we certainly like for you to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.